Welcome to this week's episode of Startups for the Rest of Us. I'm your host, Rob Walling. This week is a show we do about every three months. It's a catch-up with me, my wife, Dr. Sherry Walling. She's a clinical psychologist, and she's a founder and an executive coach. She comes on the show and interviews me about what I've been up to since the last interview. Tracy Osborne interviewed me about three months ago. So I hope you enjoy this episode as it continues to follow my story. Sherry is, uh, as I said, a clinical psychologist, and she's also built up a, a really nice personal brand in the space of helping founders succeed and helping them stay sane while starting up. You can check her out at sherrywalling.com or at zenfounder on Twitter. And with that, let's dive in. All right. You feel ready? Yep. I'm all you, good. You're good to go? You focused? You here? You in the game? Yep. I think so. It's so much harder to talk about your own stuff than it is to interview other people. I don't know. Sometimes. I am on the interviewee side, probably as much as I'm on the interviewer side. Maybe that's not still true today, but I, I'm on it quite a bit. So I'm, I'm cool to chat. Do you tend to get the same questions over and over when people are interviewing you? Yeah. If it's a new audience, a new kind of podcast, or it's someone who is just doing a bunch of interviews with people that he or she doesn't know and they kind of go with the surface stuff and they have their same set of questions. They're all pretty similar. But every once in a while I go on one, I went on one called What Works, I think is what it's called. And she asked some, she asked questions about like values and imbuing things that you do with your values and how you do it. It was just very different, you know, a whole different tact. So that those are, those can be interesting because, or they catch off guard, frankly, but they kind of look at things from a different lens. What's one of the most interesting questions that you've been asked recently? That would probably be it in that interview. She basically was saying like, she was like, how do you pass along your values or which of your values do you want to be in the, in the companies that you start and be delivered to the teams that you work with? And, and then how do you do that? And it was just a whole path of thinking about that. And the reason it was interesting is because I had really not done a lot of thinking about it. So I had to kind of think on the spot you know, what are those things and how do I do those? And it came, I listened to it today. It came out good. I think if I did it again, you know, I obviously, that's the, the, actually the beauty of being asked the same questions over and over is you learn like what, how you think about them, you know, and you learn how to answer them eloquently and, and in a way that's succinct and is not just kind of you thinking out loud and trying to find your way to an answer. Okay. So one of the things that I think is interesting about you is that you are working on three interrelated but separate businesses at the same time. And the way in which those businesses are growing, they're all growing and shifting right now. And I'm curious how you direct that growth. And and of course, we'll talk about each of them separately. We'll talk about microconf, we'll talk about startups for the rest of us, and of course, Tiny Seed. But what's the unifying thread? Like, what are you trying to accomplish? What do you want out of these three businesses as they grow? The unifying thread is that and I, I realized this over the past two years after I left Drip and I was saying, what should I do next? I, I was looking at doing like, like buying a tabletop gaming website, you know, and, and just going completely off into a different direction, down a different path than I had, had gone previously. But the more I looked at what I had done all these years for free, you know, in essence, I mean, compared to the software products and the startups and all that stuff that I had started. Blogging, podcasting, and starting a conference are, you know, either completely, re you know, revenue neutral or rounding errors of, of revenue. But I did them anyways. And that was a big sign to me of that maybe 
should be the direction that I head. And I realized that the things that those had in common and that the three things you're talking about, you know, MicroConf, TinySeed, and the podcast have in common is they help entrepreneurs, they help founders, they help us by bringing us strategies and tactics, but they also bring us together and they inspire us to keep going. And Startups for the Rest of Us is free. It's every week. It's, you know, there's not much, there's a little bit of community around it because you can tweet about it or be in the comments and you can, um, you know, hear other people, you know, answering questions and sending their questions in. But really it's a low level of engagement and the cost is zero. And if you take that up one notch, like probably my book, my first book, Start Small, Stay Small, is like it's between $10 and $25, depending on which version you buy. And there's no community there, but there's a lot of strategies and tactics and, and some inspiration. And if you take it up another notch, then there's MicroConf, which is like our local events will be 99 bucks and our growth is at, you know, 1000 or $1,100. And so there's a way more engagement and it's like super intense in terms of strategies and tactics and the inspiration, but they all do the same thing. They're purely to help startup founders. And again, one does it for free, one does it for cheap, you know, and one does it for, for less cheap. And then there's TinySeed, which is just, you, you can see the, the path, the thread that binds all those together. And that's really what I found of everything I've done in my life as a professional, that's the most fun. And that's the one that I'm most excited about. And you can tell because I've been doing it for 15 years now, the same thing. Well, you're a teacher. I mean, you've always been someone who learns something thoroughly and then wants to explain it to someone else. Yeah, there's that element. I mean, that's kind of how it started, right? With the blog and the podcast and the book, I guess. But then the interesting thing is it did not occur to me until a couple years ago when it really hit me. I always saw myself as like a facilitator, getting people together to learn. And in the early days, it was all about the tactics and the strategies. And then, you know, about, well, I'd say six, seven years ago, we realized, boy, it's it's much more about the relationships and the community. And then a couple years ago, I realized I really am bringing people together. Like that's the most important piece. It's interesting to hear you say that as something that came to you later, because in my life with you, which began 20 years ago, we identified ourselves as gatherers when we were in our early 20s and people would be at our house. Yeah, that was always something we did. But you and I did that together. You know, I didn't know if I could do it on my own or if I should or if I am good at it or whatever. But then you look at the track record of it. And if the interesting thing is when I actually look at what I've done, you know, I think there, there's a certain amount of being successful, whether it's as an entrepreneur or not, is like knowing thyself. And the more that I've learned about myself and removed those blind spots, the more I feel like I'm able to manage my own psychology and manage my own pros and cons and strengths and weaknesses. When I look back, I've had this blind spot of I didn't realize how much I wanted to get people together. Because you and I did it naturally and again, 20 years ago. And one of my favorite parts of the podcast, which is a very unidirectional medium, right? It's basically one or two people talking on the mic and everyone else listening. But one of my favorite parts are these Q&A episodes where we get all the listener questions and the feedback and the voicemails. And we can rally around that and feel like, you know, if you listen to five or six listener questions, you know, wow, it's not just the two hosts that are answering this. It's five or six other people. And, you know, every month we do an episode. So like you hear there being people, even in a medium that is designed not to be, right? In my first book, I was going back and reading that and I used a bunch of examples of, you know, like Ruben Gomez and Ted and Harry from Morrowar Software and I don't remember who else, but 
even at a time where I didn't need to do that, I realized that bringing other folks into the mix only benefits all of us. Like we're, we are all smarter than me. And then of course, microconf is that. And then tiny seed is that much more intense and much smaller scale, you know, because having the batch of 10 founders is this super in-depth and intimate community. So let's let's do a little bit of a deep dive into the podcast. There have been some significant shifts lately in that Mike is not on every week anymore, is still part of the podcast, but is not the uh, the weekly co-host. And you've made some other personnel changes by uh, hiring an assistant producer. How's that going? I mean, overall, it's been, it was touch and go at first because it was just kind of scary to be on a on a show that has had a certain format for 450 episodes and then to suddenly turn that over and say can I can I do this you know can I really keep this going at a level that that it deserves you know given the audience and just given all the stuff we've put out there and right now it feels like I mean it feels like since then there were some touch and go moments but pretty much everything feels kind of up and to the right I feel really positive about it I have a renewed energy around it and I think people can feel that. And I'm also every week thinking, what can I do differently this week? What can I mix up? And the novelty of that, of even trying different formats, I've tried some that just don't work that well, but people are like, that oh, was an interesting experiment. Have you thought about doing it this way? You know, and it's almost like customer development of like, try something new, try something new and just keep the variety going. So the interesting thing is when you do that, it takes a lot of time right? You don't just show up every week and talk for 30 minutes like we used to. And so that's where the assistant producer comes in is I find myself spending more and more time each week just doing guest research and writing questions and trying to find folks and trying to just doing all the stuff, calendaring and moving MP3 files from here to there and et cetera, et cetera, just all stuff someone else could be doing. And so that's really where um, I started looking for someone to help out and take that, that burden off because I want to keep doing it. But this is why podcasts either, well, this is why they stop is that people can come up with great ideas and want to do them, but re real life gets in the way, you know, and running microconf and tiny seed and then having this podcast as well. It's like, there's a lot going on and doing day-to-day -day stuff. It's, it was definitely. Oh, just a lot of admin too. Yep. Just mo moving files around. Not that fun. Yep. Which of the, the new formats did you really like? You tried this discussion format. Did you enjoy that? Was it fun? Was it, what were the pros and cons of that? Yeah, this it was kind of a news discussion show type thing. And it it kind of worked. It mostly worked. It was super fun to record. But I think there were some, I want to put some tighter reins on a couple of the topics, try to make them more current events. And I also think that having another, like having three of us on the mic or even four at once and doing roundtable on topics, I think could be really interesting. I know a couple other shows that do that and they focus on news topics like startup news or tech news but you hear a variety of voices from a variety of perspectives and it's it's really interesting so again that's logistically a lot of work to find those people find a time that works for everybody then get all the audio file you know just get everything together writing the show notes finding the topics on and on and on it, it truly becomes i mean the shows that i'm talking about are either the people literally do them full-time or they have full-time staff doing them and so that's what i'm looking at at expanding into that one because there's no one doing that really in in our space. They do it more in the Silicon Valley or in the kind of the tech news space. Did you try a show format that you you weren't such a fan of that you didn't like or didn't feel like it worked well? I don't know. I, I did a couple hot seats and 
I got kind of mixed reviews or really I would ask people like, what do you think of the hot seats? And they're like, oh, you did hot seat? And I was like, yeah, we went through this, this and that. And someone's like, yeah, I don't remember that episode, which tells me it probably wasn't memorable. Like it felt kind of like an interview maybe. Uh, yeah, I don't know. But then I've also heard people say, well, the ones where you go through with, a, with an entrepreneur and you're troubleshooting things and trying to think them through, those are the most interesting ones, which essentially are the, are the ones with Mike and the ones that are hot seats. So that's always the issue, right, is you only have a handful of data points on any of these things. Even when I call for feedback and say, I'm going to try this interview and call everybody back for Q&A and try this thing out, give me your feedback. I, I will get five or six people who send me an email or tweet me out, or maybe it's 10 or 12, but it's not that many, it's not so many data points that it's not an N of a hundred or a thousand, right? So you, you really have to, I will often get like two that say, yeah, that was really good. And two that say, eh, I was kind of bored. And so what do you do with that at that point? Well, you keep going. Yeah, no doubt. <laughs> Which is what you've done for 10 years now. So the 10 year anniversary of the podcast is next month, which is, is that true? It's really 10 years. That's crazy long. Yeah. March of 2010 was our first episode. Wow. So almost 500 episodes. Yeah. That'll be in June, that 500 episode. Dude, you're like an old podcaster. It really just ancient <laughs> in, 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 the, in podcast years. Yeah. In podcast years. That's OG for sure. Yeah. yeah. It's a trip. It's a trip. And of course, I don't think the 10 year... To me, the 500th episode is the is the big milestone, right? 10 years, still super interesting, but I don't know that I'll do anything fancy for that. But 500th episode, I've been trying to rack my brain of like, what do you, you know, what do you do to celebrate that? What do you do that's different? That's not just the same episode that hasn't been done before, you know? What are you going to do? Don't know yet. Still thinking about it. I have some ideas. Maybe you could live podcast while skydiving. I could do that. I think the audio quality would probably not be great. <laughs> Can you imagine that? Hey, there's it's all <laughs> I'm your host, Rob Bowling. Yeah. It, ah, right. It's just like a long scream. That's the thing. A bunch of the um of the formats that I do here, like we've Mike and I did a live podcast recording at Microsoft Europe for our 300th episode. And it's okay. You know, it's like the, as a podcast, live podcasts are not that interesting. Like they're always the my least favorite of any, if I'm listening to a series and I do a live show, they're always, I'm sure they're, they're great fun to be there in person because there's that energy, but it's not as interesting. You know, people are either, I don't know. I, I don't even want to conjecture on why that is. I just know that I've listened to 10, 15 live episodes from different podcasts that normally record in a studio and they're just off their game. I, I can't think of a single one that was better than just the normal episode they normally record. I'm curious what the audience would would recommend or would, would want to do for the 500th episode. Yeah, I would be happy to take suggestions either on Twitter at Rob Walling or questions at startupswiththerestofus.com. Definitely open to ideas. I've asked a few close friends of mine who listen to a lot of podcasts, what are the best kind of episodes you've heard? And again, I have some ideas. I'm just trying to whittle it down and figure out what... I can come up with ideas that are really, really a lot of work. And I'm trying to figure out how to either pare that down or, you know, make it happen or whatever. If like work, money, time, resources were no option, what would you do? Oh, I mean, probably you know, no limit. I would have 500 startup experts or founders or people we respect, you know, answer a question or ask me a question or, you know, something like outrageous, right? That's a really long podcast. Well, that's the problem, right? So then you have to say, well, I can't do like that. 24 hours of startups for the right. rest of us. But wouldn't that be a stunt? I mean, wouldn't that be it a would crazy... Be a stunt, that's for sure. A three or four hour, you know, podcast. So maybe you don't do 500, maybe you just do 10. So then, okay, so now 
Oh, no, no, no. You can just see where it goes. It's like now I have to arrange that and figure out who to ask and get the files back and, and this and that. And it's and it has been done. I'm not saying... I mean, I kind of have enjoyed some of those episodes. We've done them ourselves. Our 100th episode was basically asking a bunch of people a question and we got... I don't remember. It was like Sean Ellison, Andrew Warner and Peldy and, you know, a bunch of people answering questions that we tied in. And that was a, that was a fun one. But, you know, do we do that again for 500th? I don't know. Like, I, I just don't know that the the need to do something novel or or new with that big, like, pizzazz is, like, maybe the best way to celebrate 500 episodes. I mean, the 500 episodes is just, like, relentless execution, which is, you know, the Rob Walling theme. I don't know about this pressure to, like, do something new. It's possible. I mean, you know what we did with for 400? <laughs> we, we have a lot of these now. 400 was just an episode Mike and I recorded about being consistent. And that was the whole show. And we, and we looked back and we talked about how our metrics had changed, you know, audience listenership and how we had shown up every week, why we showed up every week, just all the stuff. So we have done that, I'll say, but I certainly could revisit that, that theme for sure. Well, that would be consistent. <laughs> Indeed. So right alongside the, this monster anniversary for startups for the rest of us, you also have a, a new little baby podcast. The Tiny Seed Tales, which I have to tell you, every time I see that title, I think about the DuckTales Disney show that existed when I was a kid. That is an awesome show. <laughs> Duck that Tales. show holds up. Ooh, it had this like really cool song. <laughs> not goblin tales, no duck tales. Yeah. yeah. So um, Tiny Seed Tales. Woo. How's that going? You launched season one. Yeah. Season one went out. It was a podcast I wanted to do for years, but it took a lot of time and a lot of money because we had to pay a producer who's produces at a pretty high level, you know, his voiceovers and script writing and all that stuff. And that was a cool experience to, to see how that's done. In essence, it's like, you haven't heard any episodes, right? Uh, no. Confessions of the wife. <laughs> I know you don't listen to my podcast and I listen to yours. So let's put that for the record. But you, if you listen to nothing else, you should listen to Tiny Seed Tales. It's eight episodes. They're like 20 minutes each. And they're... Why should I listen to it, Rob? Because it's it's good radio. Like, it's really, it's really good. What like, makes it good radio? Because I know it's not just the production value and the money and the time. Like, why is it good? One, one part is, you know, you talk for 40 minutes and then you take the best 15 minutes of all that audio, you pack it together, write five minutes of voiceovers. That is inherently going to be more interesting than a 40-minute interview. You just get better tape. In addition, I really started doubling down on my interviewing skills right before that because I didn't want it to suck. And so you know me when I am new to something or feel like I'm not good at something, I dive in pretty, pretty deep. And so I don't know, I have some of my best, probably some of my best interviews I've given are, are in Tiny Seed Tales. And then Craig, the first you know season was with Craig from Castos, and he's also re- very thoughtful. He's really good on the mic. It just it came off really. It was a very natural fit for him to do. I didn't have to. He wasn't nervous. You know, like I can imagine doing it with someone who hasn't podcasted before, and I think it would have been a lot more challenging. And then there's cool music too. Oh, as long as there's cool music. But is it the, is it the Tiny Tales theme song? Woo, like Ducktales. No, but we should have done that now that you've said that. Dude, so DuckTales, you're, you're mocking it, but like DuckTales holds up. It's one of the cartoons from the 80s that's considered I am not really mocking good. it. I am singing along. You misunderstand me, sir. I'm not mocking it. They've redone it. Disney just redid it. And that the new one has chops too. Have you been watching Disney Plus in the night while I'm sleeping? No. Maybe Finn has. <laughs> okay. So one last question about the podcast, and then I know there's lots of other things that you've been working on that I want to ask you about, but what is your growth area in podcasting? 
What do you mean? What growth area? So you've been, you've been doing this for 10 years. Like, what are you working on getting better at? What are you continuing to learn about and press into as someone who is guiding startups for the rest of us? Two things. You've heard me do intros and outros or solo episodes. And I want to be able to do those almost without editing. Because when you and I are here talking, I'm not starting and stopping 20 times for five minutes of, of response. It's just a natural conversation that flows. When I sit down to intro and outro this episode, <laughs> Josh, our editor, is like cringing right now, thinking of how much he has to edit those two-minute, three-minute intros. Something about it when someone else is not on the mic, I just get stuck. It's, it's weird. So I'm trying to work through that. The other thing that is more visible to listeners is every interview I do, I'm trying to become a better interviewer. I'm trying to get better at asking the right questions, asking them in a way that brings out the interesting answers that touches on the emotion, but also brings out tactics and learnings. And there's a lot to be learned, a lot to be learned there. And that that's kind of what's still exciting for me about the podcast is that I think once I peek at anything, I think most of us, once you peek and you're like, ah, that's it, I'm the best there is, it's like kind of only downhill from there. And I still feel like I can see a lot of mountain up, up ahead of me that I haven't climbed here with podcasting. I think I can only get better in a, in a lot of ways. Are you going to be doing this in 10 years? I don't know. I would say yes, because that's my personality is to just do things forever. I said that on purpose. <laughs> Well, I say that on purpose because I knew you'd laugh. Forever. Because every software company I've ever started, I have not done forever. I know. I was like, that is that is absolutely not true, Rob Walling. It's the opposite, yeah. But the interesting thing is, is with book, blog, podcast, conference, like that stuff I have done for a very long time. And that was the signal, you know, a couple years ago where I was like, huh, I keep coming back to these things. And podcasting is one. If anything, I could see myself doing... I mean, I kind of have, you know, Tiny Sea Tales, while it's been on the feed, on this feed, I'm setting up another feed for it and it's going to be in seasons. But really, I, I kind of have two podcasts now and I could see having another. Like, I enjoy it that much. I enjoy consuming podcasts that much and I enjoy creating them a lot. So do I think I will be podcasting in 10 years? I do. I think it might be startups for the rest of us, but but who knows? I mean, so much can change. You know, I think, think back 10 years ago, I hadn't started Drip, hadn't bought Hittail, hadn't started this podcast. <laughs> so much was different. So when I think 10 years ahead from now, like where, where could that lead? Well, speaking of things leading places, let's shift gears, move down the funnel a little bit and talk about MicroConf because it has been like a huge year for MicroConf already. You did this big announcement talking about like really reorganizing the schedule and the structure of MicroConf. We are getting ready for MicroConf here in Minneapolis in just a few months, which I'm very excited about. So just like 2020 compared to 2019, what are the significant changes that you're implementing with MicroConf? Yeah, it's a huge, I mean, as you said, it's a huge change. Like 2019, we did three in-person events. Which was growth, starter, and Europe. And now what's 2020 looking like? Yeah, we're doing seven in-person events. So it's growth starter in Europe and then four local events. Yeah, you just sent me all the calendar invites to all these events actually yesterday. And I was like, holy crap, you're basically gone most of the month of October traveling around doing the MicroConf Roadshow is what I'm going to affectionately call it. Yep, that's exactly a good name for it. 
So yeah, so we went to seven of those. Then we were doing the state of independent SaaS report. Uh, or I say we're doing it. We did the survey, issued the report, did a live stream, which as I've talked about was quite an endeavor and a little bit nerve wracking. A little bit nerve wracking? Are you kidding me? You were sweating that for weeks. I haven't seen you that stressed about something like since maybe the drip sale or the decision to leave drip, but you were like, which outfit should I wear? I mean, it was really occupying a lot of space. Why do you think it was, it was so challenging? Probably because, so I wrote this blog post years ago called the terror of firsts. And I say the first time you do anything, it terrifies you. And then you just do it until you get numb to it. And pretty soon you get better at it. You get more comfortable with it. And first time I ever published a blog post, I was freaking out. First time I ever published a podcast episode, I was freaking out. First time I ever did a talk in front of people, I was freaking out on and on and on. And each of those I have become more comfortable with. And I think most of us do. And that this was one. Doing a 30-minute live stream where you are standing looking at a camera and nothing else is not the same as standing on a stage at a conference and talking to 500 or 1,000 people. It's crazy how different it is. The energy is different. It's a skill. like, And it's something that you know, if you would ask me what, what's my personal development this year, a lot of it is that, is getting better in front of a camera. And it's not that I'm, I'm not nervous. Like I don't, I don't get the sweaty palms, you know, hair standing up on the back of my neck and throat closing. I don't get, I don't get that, but I just get, you just get awkward naturally, right? The camera just doesn't feel like a natural conversation because you're talking to no one. You're talking, you're staring off into an abyss and trying to have a personality. And I don't think it's a natural thing for us to do, at least for me, I'll speak for myself. Oh no, it goes against like every part of our brains that's geared towards interactive communication. Yeah, no one's nodding. No one's saying, "Uh uh-huh, you know, you're not getting any positive feedback, which in an event, I can be nervous, get up, start doing a talk, I start talking about things, I see people in the audience, they're going with it, they're smiling, and I'm like, yeah, yeah, and you feed off that energy, right? I mean, you know that feeling. Oh, yeah. And you don't get that with a thing. So, So that's where standing for 30 minutes with no script, no cue cards, and talking, and knowing that there's really no cutaways, like even to get a drink, there was not enough time for me to get a stop and get a drink of water in the middle of that. I could have, but people would literally be waiting on a live stream while you do that. And that's a new experience for me. And I'm sure over time, I'll become more comfortable, just like now on stage. If I need to stop and get a drink, the deafening silence that you hear. Remember the first time you did a talk? Whenever you were quiet, it sounded deafening, like you should be filling the silence. Like everyone was waiting for you to say the next word. But then like the 10th, 20th talk you do, you're like, the silence helps. Gives people space. Yeah, the silence is fine. To think. Yep. That's where doing a live stream like that, I was like, oh, which rules apply? Which don't? What do I have to adjust here? And how do I get in front of this many people? It's now been viewed because it, it got recorded, right? And then it's on YouTube. And I, I think it's 2,500 or 3,000 views, right? So I'm going to be seen by 3,000 people on camera. How do I make that interesting for them? And how do I make it provide the value of someone giving me, you know, 3,000 people giving me 30 minutes of their time? Why was it so important to you to do the state of independent SAS, to do the report, to do the study, and then to do the live stream? Like, why is that significant? The report for me was a, it's like a passion project that I've been wanting to do for years because there just hasn't been data in our space. We see all these reports about venture capital, venture capital raising companies and, and their stats and their, you know, their benchmarks. And I've just been so curious because people ask me how many people who go to MicroGraph raise, have raised some kind of funding. And I was always like, I think about 10%, but I don't know. And I was super curious to hear that. I have all these rules of thumb of like how much, you know, what your churn should be, what's good, bad, and great churn. And 
trial to paid conversion ratio and just all these metrics that I have developed the rules of thumb over the years, but it's just from seeing a bunch of apps and it's, it's beyond anecdotal. It's not that I had one, an N of one, but I had an N of dozens, I'll say that I've combined. And I wanted to see if those, how those held up. And it wasn't just a personal thing, but it's like, I want this whole space. I, I think this is the future. Like I've believed this, that this space is the future because venture capital could only be invested in, you know, what it's like a hundredth of, you know, one out of every hundred startups or something. I mean, there, it's, it's a really small number. So we are the other, we're, we're for the rest of us. We're startups for the rest of us, right? We're the other 99%. And I believe as we move forward, and I have believed this for a long time, that we are, we are the long tail of startups. So where's the data on us? Where's the stuff to help us? Where's the stuff to give us some type of benchmarks? How do you see the information in this report and then in the live stream impacting an individual founder? Yeah, so the the live stream was really, I mean, it was it was 22 minutes plus Q&A of me just walking through some high-level findings and it was to get people interested enough in it to read the report because the report itself is between 65 and 80 pages depending on which version you get. There's a lot more in the report and so the, you can think of the live stream almost as an advertisement to download the report. Just to be like, hey, look at this thing. This is interesting. And these are my thoughts about it. It's an abstract. It is. That's a good point, right? Yeah, like the, an abstract, like in an academic paper. Whereas the report, if I was a founder, I would be looking, oh, where am I? What percentile am I at with my churn and with my trial to paid and with my hours worked per week and with how many years I've been in, in business versus growth versus, you know, there's there were just all types of findings in there that I think it depends on your situation, but that we can kind of benchmark ourselves to. In addition, there were some interesting findings with like what, which marketing approaches and which advertising approaches are working best for you right now. We have now have a ranking of that in our space and we have payback periods for Facebook and Google ads so that you can see, oh yeah. And, and my gut was always, it was like one to three, one to four months is where we want to be as bootstrappers, sell, you know, indie funded, self-funded founders. And that was, that was the majority, I think, or maybe it was 40 or 50% were doing that. But it, again, it, it reinforced some stuff that I already knew. But if I hadn't already known that, or if, if you're just coming new to the space, or you're just trying to figure stuff out, you, you can just look through and be like, okay, this is where I, this is the sanity check range of where most people are. And on some really, really concrete things that affect choices that founders make every day. So um, what's this microconf connect more slack channels for me to deal with oh my god why would i do that yay i'm totally gonna invite you totally gonna invite you so yeah i mean that's another thing right it's the state of independent SaaS live stream we're doing microconf remote which is a remote event here in i think it's july or august i don't know if we have the date nailed down yet and then we have long been asked like i want to stay in touch with folks from microconf year-round there's no way to do that because we would set up a slack channel for an event use that as a communication method, and then we'd shut it down 30 days later. And the reason we did is because managing a Slack channel is a lot of work, and you need to moderate it to keep it healthy, and there's you know all kinds of stuff to, to be done. So we now have the resources to, to do that. And so that's what it is. It's, it's connecting founders. It's kind of the online home for the microconf community, founders and aspiring founders who want to build these ambitious startups, You know, as I often say in the intro of this podcast. So all this stuff and change that's going on with microconf and it, it it's all like rebranded and packaged in a great website now so you had that all redesigned and redone that feels really good it was so we had just kind of a it looks so much better <laughs> it was always a it was a side project you know that's the thing the podcast and microconf were literally side projects of mike and i 
And I always felt like, we both felt like they, these should get more due. These are good things that should be treated better and look better. And yeah, so it feels good to finally have a logo that I think will last us a long time and a website and, and all that stuff. And that's been the big push, right? Since we brought Xander on full time here about six months ago is just getting your ducks in a row. Like how, how does this all fit together and how do we expand this in a way that helps, that helps more founders? You know, it comes back to that whole thing. Why am I doing this? And cause it excites me. I want to be in this space. And I want to help founders. So how do you help more founders? You do stuff that's hopefully cheaper because a lot of people are bootstrapping and you try to reach more people. And that's where you get the remote events and the local events where we kind of roadshow out to folks so they don't have to travel. It's been a fun experience to try to brainstorm how to do that, how to accomplish that. What founders need. Yeah. Yeah. And how to do it in a way that's economically viable. Because it's like, if you think about MicroConf being three in-person events per year, how do you, you can't just expand that infinitely. It doesn't scale. You, know, you can't do a hundred events per year or not. You can't easily switch to that. So how do you do that? and expand it in a way that's intelligent, intelligent and somewhat scalable. And that's a balance we're trying to strike, right? It's some online stuff and some in person. And it's just neat to see it it grow up, right? I think startups with the rest of us, MicroConf, as you said, they were side projects. They were things that you did on the evenings and weekends when you were running your real company. And now that you have more time and energy to devote to them, they they really are starting to look like that and reflect that this is some of the core of what you're doing and what you're working on and the ways that you're serving the founder community. So I, I love how they look. Both both the Startups for the Rest of Us website and the MicroConf website are looking good. So let's talk a little bit about Tiny Seed, since that is, I guess, quote unquote, your real business now. Yeah, for sure. You've closed uh, batch two, right? Yeah, almost there. I mean, we've made offers. We've had verbal yeses. Yes, if everything goes through, you never know what's going to happen, you know, when you get to due diligence and paperwork. And we're basically in the midst of that right now. And so sending docs, getting stuff signed. Is that the least fun part? For me, yes. The due diligence, I think for everybody probably, is the due diligence and trying to get docs signed and just all the questions dealing with corporate. Paperwork, due totally. diligence. Papers and paychecks. And that's been really, it's been really nice to have Tracy around because she's spending a lot of time that I spent last batch, you know, she's focusing on that. And then ANR's working with her on that. And so I've been able to, you know, given the podcast expansion and the microcom expansion, I was we kind of, it was like, ah, I can't, can't do that again. You know, you can only do so many things at once. And that's been a, a reason I've been able to focus more on these other things. And is it the hope to bring batch one and batch two together in Minneapolis right around microconf time? Does everything converge? Yeah, it does, which is kind of cool. I mean, that's, that was by design and it will be by design is to get, since we are remote, you know, there's not a ton of overlap between the batches and that's, it's neat to be able to have the, the batch two meet batch one and hang out because there's the alumni association, so to speak. And there's a big, that's a big factor in a lot of these accelerators and it will be in tiny seed is that the alumni help the next batch get acclimated and, and, you know, act as can offer some mentorship or some guidance on a number of fronts. I think that's the value. Yeah. They become mentors of sorts. Exactly. And that's the value of, well, that's such a big part of the value of being an accelerator and not just being a fund is when you have a fund and you write checks to companies, oftentimes they never meet. They don't really know of each other. You know, I mean, they'll know of each other, but they won't hang out together. And the batch part brings people together in such a tight community. And then even across batches, being able to propagate that and to have, by the time you get to batch three, four, five, like 
them reaching back to batch one, who a lot of those companies will be wildly successful at that point, I'm, I'm willing to wager and, and have been willing to wager, and that they're able to then continue to learn from them and also get introductions and work the networks and the, the network of tiny seed founders just will expand naturally each year. What changes have you made between batch one and batch two? Well, I mean, the, the process for, for batch two, the application process was more streamlined. It was it was just a better process. And of course, we tweaked the, the application questions a lot. It was it was good to have three people. It wasn't just Anar and myself. And actually, you were involved more in the first one because I had some one-off questions. But this time, like Tracy took a lot of the third-person role to kind of weigh in on things. And that was that was helpful. And then we did change the funding amounts. We tweaked them very minorly. The version two terms, I believe, are the same. I don't think we changed that terms at all. And then batch two, yeah, we'll, we'll tweak some stuff with the calls. We're going to do fewer retreats. We did four retreats this year and our feedback was... Too much time in Florida. One too many retreats. Yeah, so we're going to move to three three in-person gatherings, which which feels good. It's nice to have some space to implement all of that retreat content between time. Yeah, that's the idea. What we found is there's a lot of... You learn a ton in the first couple months, let's say three to five months, three to six months, and then you really know where you're headed after that. You know, you have some small questions beyond that, but it's not the the huge directional shifts. Like in the first two months, we had multiple people like that needed to completely redo pieces of their business. Like, oh, you're you're charging three times too little, or your onboarding is no good, or your entire pricing structure is off tweak, you know, let's help you figure out how to tweak that or your copy is this, you know, there, there are some major changes. And while those, you know, continue to happen in some form or fashion, it's not to the extent of the first few months of a program like this. And so there's actually less of a need as you get through the program. I mean, there's, there's a reason that a lot of accelerators are three months because you can provide a lot of value in that, in that time. And then of course they try to, their goal is to raise around, right? Have everybody raise funding. That's not our goal. And we do think that, that, SaaS, we know it takes a lot longer. So we do want it to be longer than three months. But we also think that a call every week for 12 months is probably, that was the initial hypothesis. And it starts to feel a little heavy as you get further and further in. It's like, do we really need a mentor call, you know, two mentor calls a, a month still, even though we're eight, nine, 10 months into this? Or am I just focusing and needing to implement? And right now it's almost accountability mode. It's like, I need someone to keep me accountable to sanity checks and stuff, but just keep me accountable to continuing to implement on these plans that I'm trying to get done by month 12. And it, it, we really have seen a shift in a lot of the, the thought process and, and the stages these companies are at, which is good. It shows there's motion, right? A lot of folks came in relatively early stage and you hit a point where you don't need all that anymore. You're just plowing forward and, and blocking and tackling, as they say, just implementing. What are you most excited about, about a new batch? another round. I'm excited to see how I think like with any startup founder, which I still consider myself like it, we're implementing some things differently and I'm excited to see how those work out and don't work out. I'm excited to get to know everyone. Like I, the relationships that I have with batch one founders, I, I truly like are very valuable to me and I don't mean monetarily. I mean, like I would call many of these folks friends, certainly deep acquaintances, but people that I enjoy hanging out with and that I truly wish a lot of success on, you know, I truly wish that they have a lot, I hope they have a lot of success purely because I think that they've worked hard and it's building new relationships is, is probably the best way to say it. And that, yeah, that feels, feels exciting. And it's also interesting that it's exciting to me to be able to help people. It's another group of folks. Yeah. It's a deep investment in humans. That's what it is. 
that's the part that excites me the most, just in general, investing deeply. Well, you've had a, you've had a big year. I can't believe that it, I mean, it's only been, has it been two years since you left Drip? Almost two years? Yeah, almost two years. So there's been like phenomenal change and growth and the development, the inception of Tiny Seed all the way to now your second batch, which is, it's amazing to see the pace at which you've moved, but then also you've been executing on these ideas and this material for many years, at least 10 with the podcast. So um, again, we have that dichotomy of like 20 years to overnight success. Yeah, that's how it feels. It's that thing of showing up every day, right? It's relentless execution, but you know what's funny is that makes it sound like you work to the bone constantly and work 60-hour weeks, and that's not what I do and not really what I've ever done for any stretch of time. But you can build it up, as you're saying, but you do anything consistently for 10 years, and you're going you're gonna to make some progress. You're going to get better at it. You're going to build something. Well, thanks for letting me take over your podcast today. Yeah, it was great. I enjoyed the conversation. Thanks for it's it's cool to be interviewed by different people because they add they think about things along different axes and able to answer different questions and, and look at progress along different axes, I guess to say again. So yeah, I really appreciate you taking the time to uh, come on the show. And if folks want to keep up with you, you have your own podcast. It's called Zen Founder. And you are at Zen Founder on Twitter and SherryWalling.com on the interwebs. Thanks again to Sherry for coming on the show. And look for another Rob Ketchup episode here in about three months. In the meantime, if you have questions for me or other guests who have appeared on the show, please send me an email, questions at startupsfortherestofus.com. We also have a voicemail line people use from time to time, 888-801-9690. As always, voicemails and audio files go to the top of the stack. If you're not already subscribed to Startups for the Rest of Us, head to your podcatcher, search for startups. We're typically in the top five. Thanks for listening. I'll see you next week.